Uh, we are going to continue our study uh, through the book of Exodus, um, and hence I'd ask you to open to Exodus uh, chapter 12. Yeah, the time has finally come for Israel to depart from Egypt. A judgment had fallen, a tragedy and turmoil had torn through Egypt like a devastating cyclone, leaving this powerful empire in utter chaos. It had just experienced its most traumatic hours in all of its existence, with all the firstborn of both land sorry, firstborn of the land, both man and beast, losing its life. And yet we have God's people were spared from this devastating judgment because they were covered by the blood. But God's intention was more than simply saving His people. He wanted to take them out of the land. He wanted to deliver them from slavery. And it is this that we have recorded before us. So let's read from verse 33. Um, of Exodus chapter 12. The Word of God says, And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people, that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, We be all dead men. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their cloths upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold, and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about six hundred thousand on foot that were men beside children. And the mixed multitude went up also with them, and flocks and herds, even very much cattle. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought forth out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry, neither had they prepared for themselves any victual. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord, but bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. Amen. The title for the sermon this evening is Finally Free. And let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Father, thank you that you have uh, spoken to us and it has been recorded uh, faithfully. Father, thank you for uh, this Exodus account that we have uh, recorded. And Father, we do thank you for what it reveals about yourself and about the salvation that is ours. And Father, as we consider uh, this text tonight, uh, Father, I do pray that uh, you would open uh, our eyes, you would give us ears to hear, and you would give us uh, soft and receptive hearts. And Lord, be, be they who not only hear the word, but be doers also. Father, please give us much grace. Uh, with this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I find it fascinating in our text, the brevity employed considering the significance of what was unfolding. Now, we are given very little information 
considering how vital an event this was. God's people being freed from the cruel Egyptian oppression was an absolute necessity for the unfolding biblical narrative. It's full of rich and powerful theological significance, rich symbolism, picturing the salvation of mankind. This comes oozing out like honey from the comb, and it is an incredibly exciting story. And yet we are given so little detail, which is striking considering its significance in the biblical narrative. Now imagine some of the stories that could have been told. It would have been fascinating to hear the events from the perspective of a little boy who was enthralled and and captivated with everything that had occurred. You you can imagine it, couldn't you? You know, this lamb had just been killed and put on my door and I was saved. And then this crazy Pharaoh guy decided to to release us and mum and dad woke me up. I've grabbed a few things. I've left my favorite toy behind and, and we are gone. I'm sure a young child would offer a very unique perspective, particularly when it comes to the gross and gruesome details and the hyperbole that children are known to employ. Or imagine the unfolding events described by an elderly individual. They had been subject to this cruel oppression for their whole life. The pain of the whips coming down on their back was still very real. The sound of the cruel taskmaster's taunt still rang very loudly in their ears. They they weren't sure if this day would ever come when they would be set free. And you can picture the excitement on their face as they described the feelings that swept over them when they realized it was over, that they were now finally free. You know, you can sense the relief. Or imagine some of the stories that Moses could have told. He had a very unique perspective with personal interaction with the Pharaoh. And imagine him explaining how he broke the news to the people. I'm sure they were excited. You know, we, we have been released. It'd be interesting to hear how he organized the people to evacuate the land. And I'm sure as they sat around the campfire, he had some fascinating stories to tell. And yet despite the great potential for quite the story to be told, the details given in the text are quite minimal. But this matches the tone of the events. For what is stressed throughout this narrative is the suddenness of this departure. It all happened very quickly. Verse 41 speaks of the self-same day. And this is a reference to the day of the Passover. They were ordered to leave immediately after the devastating judgment had fallen. The death of the firstborn and their departure are simultaneous events. There was not a week or two to prepare, but rather this departure was immediate. And the tone of the events suits the minimal detail given. But there are some details given. And in our time together, I'd like to consider three details that the Holy Spirit through the pen of Moses thought necessary to record and consider what these details teach us about our God. So firstly, let's see God's promise. Now, one of the details recorded is the time spent in Egypt. Oh, God's people had been in this foreign land for some time. 
this was not just a generation or two, but rather 430 years. We see this in verse 40 and verse 41. Now think about that for a moment. They were in Egypt for almost double the length of time since our country has been discovered. This is quite the time. Now, if the departure was this year, 2019, they had been in Egypt since 1589. That's just a little bit after the Reformation. So this is quite the expanse of time. Now, I do not believe they were in slavery for this whole period, but rather it had been 430 years since Jacob and his sons had settled in Egypt. And hence, this was their home. This was all that they knew. And hence it would take quite the upheaval to unsettle and dislodge Israel from Egypt. Despite being in slavery, this was their life. This is all that they knew. This is where their children were born. This is where they were born and they had become accustomed to the Egyptian way of life. So much so that in Ezekiel chapter 20 verses 7 and 8, we are told that they had become engrossed in Egyptian idolatry. They had laid with the dogs and had caught fleas. And it becomes evident in later parts of the narrative that many never truly departed, for that is where their heart remained. The man was removed from Egypt, but Egypt was not removed from the man. So this lengthy time period stresses how accustomed the people had become in Egypt. And hence something radical was required to ensure that they would just up and leave. And hence the whole plague drama that we have just studied was just as much for Israel as it was Egypt. It was to unsettle them and show them the futility of idolatry and the greatness of God. And these radical events crushed the Egyptians in such a way that they forced Israel to leave, according to verse 33. I'm sure many didn't need to be told twice, you, you are free to go. But if there were any who really didn't want to leave, Egypt was okay for them. They were happy and content. This simply wasn't allowed for. That They were driven out. They were forced out. For both Pharaoh and the Egyptian people feared for their lives. But the real significance behind this time period is the fact that God had promised the amount of time that his people would be in Egypt for. In Genesis 15, when God makes a covenant with Abram, he says this in verse 13. Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, that's Egypt, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. So we see that it was always a part of God's plan for his people to be in Egypt. And that's because Egypt served as a mother's womb for Israel. A place where they grew rapidly from a large family to a mighty nation and they could not grow this way in the land of Canaan because intermarriage with the pagans was far more likely. But the Egyptians had such an entrenched system of superiority that they would never marry an Israelite and hence Israel could grow over several centuries without being assimilated. And also, when they were in Egypt, 
They enjoyed the protection of the Egyptians in a military sense. And this enabled them to flourish without being constantly slaughtered by the enemies, which would have been the case if they stayed in the land of Canaan. So we see that God had a definite plan in bringing his people into Egypt. It enabled them to flourish and to develop into a nation. Israel was formed in the fiery affliction of Egypt. But this was only ever to last for a set period of time. We see this in his promise with Abraham, and that was 400 years. Now the question that must be answered that's probably on your mind, was it 400 years or was it 430 years? How are we to understand this? Now one line of thought explains this like so. Israel were in Egypt for 430 years but were in slavery for 400 of those years. And this is how some scholars reconcile the two dates. Now that's plausible but I think unlikely. Now, the other explanation involves understanding how numbers were used. In ancient writing, numbers were often rounded off instead of giving an exact number. And this is really a universal custom in every age. Now, when you and I speak of numbers, we too often round. Now, I'll be there in 10 minutes. If we get there in 8 minutes or 12 minutes, that doesn't mean we have been deceitful. We've simply rounded the time. And this is a practice employed in the scriptures. In fact, sometimes rounding is even indicated by using the term about. We see this in Genesis 38:24, which says, And it came to pass about three months. So in our text in Exodus, the number is not rounded off. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Because they are the people involved. And hence, they would be more aware, they would be more interested in the exact time. 30 years difference meant an awful lot to them. But in the promise to Abraham, a rounded off number was given, which would be sufficient for him. But the clear point in all of this, this is the point that I want to drive home, is the fact that God keeps his promises. The time in Egypt was predicted and it happened just as God had said. And yet there must have been many times for the people when freedom from Egypt looked highly unlikely. As the whips ripped flesh off their back, freedom would have looked an impossibility. The longer time went on, the hope for a release must have evaporated. And with the previous nine plagues failing to break the Pharaoh, many must have thought, if all of this failed, what else could possibly work? And many must have given up hope and resigned themselves to dying in Egypt. But my friend, God was faithful to his word. He kept his promise. And this is the character of the God we serve. Our God is a promise-keeping God. He's faithful, He's good, He's trustworthy, and He will always keep His Word. Now, every promise that He has made to you in His Word, He will keep. It will come to pass. And when we ponder what is promised in the Bible, that's a wonderful thought, isn't it? And our God is not like our family, our friends, our boss or our government who often make promises they can't keep and they let us down. 
but rather it's impossible for our God to not keep a promise for that is contrary to who He is. And my friend, no matter how hard, dark or difficult your life may become, no matter the circumstances that you endure, remember that you serve a promise-keeping God. Oh, learn what God has promised in His Word and claim them as your own. For if God said it, He will do it. Now, when you feel deserted and alone, remember that Jesus has promised that He will never leave you nor forsake you. When you are struggling to make ends meet, remember that God has promised to meet all of your needs. When you are struggling with eternal security, remember God has promised that there is no condemnation for those in Christ. When you are struggling with guilt from sin, remember that God has promised that if you confess that sin, it it will be forgiven. When you feel unloved, remember that God has promised that nothing can separate you from the love of God and so on. You know, the Bible is full of precious promises. And they're promises for you. And God will keep them just like He did in freeing His people from Egyptian oppression. Secondly, let's consider God's preservation. Now, another detail that we have recorded helps us grasp the size of the people that were set free from Egypt. Now, this wasn't just a couple of families. Nor was it just a few hundred people which would have been amazing enough. But verse 37 tells us that there were 600,000 that were men. So this doesn't include the women or the children. And hence this leads scholars to think that the number would have been somewhere between 1.8 and 2.2 million people. So let's take the middle of that estimate and say 2 million people people. Now think about that, that's roughly the population of Brisbane or Perth. It's simply staggering to ponder. 70 people came down, 2 million people left. Now try and picture a multitude gathered of 2 million people. How long and how wide would have the line been? How much food and water would be required? How did they cross the Red Sea? And it is these questions that have caused many to question the accuracy of this number. It seems for many to be far-fetched, and hence many have questioned it. A solution has been put forward that is faithful to the biblical text. It simply questions the the English interpretation of a Hebrew word. So the word that we see translated thousand is the Hebrew word aleph. And this can be translated as clan or group and was often used to refer to a military unit of soldiers. And hence this could be translated as 600 groups or clans. That would be a correct interpretation. And this would lead to a more conservative estimate of tens of thousands rather than millions. Now, this explanation does not question whether the Bible is true, but simply the interpretation in the English text. And that's not a problem for us, because we need to remember that inspiration is limited to the original manuscripts. The King James Version, nor any other translation, cannot claim inspiration. So that's one solution. But in my opinion, the large number is not really that big a problem. 
And I believe it's in harmony with the rest of Scripture. You know, there are, there are two texts that shed some light. Exodus thirty-eight twenty-six, which says, A bakar for every man that is half a shekel, after the shekel of the sanctuary, for every one that went to be numbered from 20 years old and upward for 600,000 and 3,550 men. A very specific number. And also Numbers 146. Even all they that were numbered were 600,000, 3,550. So both of these texts give a very specific number. And hence the above interpretation of Elaf as clans or groups doesn't harmonize as well with these particular texts. And to add to this, for a population to boom to this number over a 400 year period, so to go from 70 to 2 million, would require a 2.5% growth rate, which certainly is not out of the equation. There are countries in our world presently that are hovering around about the 3%. So this isn't beyond the realm of possibility. And when we allow for the miraculous, remembering that at the beginning of this book, the Lord was blessing His people with more births than were normally expected. This is what initially caused the ruthlessness of Pharaoh. The Israelites were breeding like rabbits and he was concerned they were going to overtake And hence, with the hand of the Lord on his people, this number in the millions is certainly a possibility. If we believe in a God who is powerful enough to unleash the ten plagues, surely a few more bursts than normal is nothing. You know, this number certainly stresses the miraculous. And that's a good thing. Now, this departing out of the front door of Egypt can only be accredited to the Lord. And the great daily care and provision that would be required to sustain such a multitude further stresses the greatness of God. You know, how much food, how much water would be required? You know, this departure out of Egypt had nothing to do with the supremacy of Israel, but all to do with the supremacy of their God. Now, there is another detail that further confirms this large number, and it's an often neglected detail. That being, it was not only Israelites who departed from Egypt. Now, were you aware of that? Look at verse 38. It speaks of a mixed multitude. Now, elsewhere, this term is translated as a rabble. So, Egyptians followed. Other nationalities tagged along. And this is understandable, isn't it? You can imagine the great pull of being associated with this group of people after witnessing what their God had just done. He has rendered all of the Egyptian pantheon of gods as useless. Egypt has been left utterly devastated. And instead of staying around to endure poverty, why not follow this crowd? When this further explains the large number, other nationalities were included. But the main point that I want to make from this large number is the miraculous preserving work of God. Don't miss this point. Slave people don't flourish 
It doesn't happen. In fact, they go backwards. And yet in Egypt... God's people had been brutally oppressed and afflicted. The workload was unimaginably unfair and unbearable. The cruel tyrant had endeavoured to to crush this people with the hammer of his brutality. He had tried to destroy the male offspring. And yet despite these terrible circumstances, despite the best attempt from the enemy to destroy the Jewish people, despite the best attempt of Satan to halt the messianic line, in face of this, God's people prospered. They boomed. God preserved for himself a people. And don't miss the covenantal significance with this. What was the key component of the Abrahamic covenant? I will make of thee a great nation. A people would come from the seed of Abraham. He was promised many descendants. And this exodus from Egypt is certainly a fulfillment of this covenantal promise. A great nation now existed in spite of the tremendous burden of persecution that they had endured. And beloved, how often this pattern has been followed throughout history. The greater the persecution, the more God's people seem to flourish. Think of the early church, the crusade of Saul and his fellow Pharisees. They were striving to halt Christianity. And what happened? It spread. It spread like wildfire. It boomed. And this too is still happening today. There are many countries in this world where persecution is very real. It's life-threatening to be a Christian. Africa and Asia are full of such places. Governments and other religions are trying to snuff out Christianity, to stop the spread of the gospel. And yet, do you know where the most souls are coming to Christ? It's in the persecuted lands. Africa and Asia, they are the booming continents. It's not America, it's not Australia. Nepal and China are incredibly hostile places and yet it is here, according to statistics, where Christianity is growing the fastest. Right throughout history, many enemies employed by the great enemy have strived to stop Christianity but to no avail. Instead, our great and mighty God often uses the greatest persecution to produce the greatest growth. Do you remember the words of Jesus? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we see that being fulfilled right throughout history. No, beloved, nothing, nothing at all can stop Jesus building his church. Be encouraged, nothing can thwart it. The third detail is God's provision. In order to be able to survive independently, God's people would require material possessions. But as a slave people, they were poor. They would have had little to no silver or gold and hence would struggle to survive. Silver and gold was needed to buy and sell and trade. And hence the Lord provided in the most astonishing way. In verses 35 and 36, we have an amazing scene where the Egyptians fund the Israelites, where the masters give to the slaves. The idea is the Israelites went from door to door 
you know, much like trick or treat on Halloween, I guess, and asked the Egyptians for valuable possessions and they obliged. What irony. Now, verse 36 informs us that the Lord gave his people favour in the sight of the Egyptians. And hence they were very generous in what they gave. So what we have here is not only a slave group being released, which in of itself is amazing, but we have the slave masters funding the release of the slaves. But when we consider this, it's just, isn't it? You know, God's people had been made to work unfairly and unjustly for no money for centuries. You know, a biblical principle is that a labourer is worthy of his hire and the Lord ensures that the Egyptians pay up for the labour that his people had undertaken. And as I consider this, it must have been quite nice for the Israelites to, to go and knock on the door of the slave master that was the nastiest to them. And go, hey buddy, how are you? Give me all your money. And he emptied his wallets. You know, that would have been quite a nice feeling. Now there is a, a moral problem that is raised from this particular scene. And we see in the text the word borrowed is employed. And this word carries the idea of returning. If you borrow my books, it's on the condition that you return it. But we must understand that the Hebrew word simply means to ask or request. The Israelites asked for gold, silver and raiment and the Egyptians obliged. They asked and it was given. If they had not have asked, they would not have received. But the extent of the Egyptian provision is revealed in verse 36. The word of God says that they spoiled the Egyptians. Oh, spoiled was a term used to describe what the winning army would take from the city they had defeated. That they would take absolutely everything. They would plunder the people. That's the imagery and it's quite appropriate, isn't it? For the Lord had defeated Egypt and it was only right and fair that his people received of the victory spoil. And another insight that adds to this is that Egypt were notorious in demanding large sums of both silver and gold from their subjects. Their army would collect large tributes and yet the roles here are changed. That they were now the givers rather than the takers just as God promised in Genesis chapter 15. Now, God's people not only marched right out Egypt's front door as a free people, they were now also a rich people. And after 400 years, they were finally free. And what a glorious feeling that must have been to leave the land of Goshen. No more bricks, no more whips, no more unreasonable expectations. They had been redeemed. And God had provided everything that they required to survive. They left with bountiful blessings, overflowing with silver and gold. But what is particularly interesting is the two ways in which they use these blessings from God later on. Two significant events occur later in the book of Exodus. One is the building of the golden calf, 
and the other is the building of the tabernacle. And both of these projects were undertaken with what the Lord had provided His people with. What the Lord had blessed His people with on one occasion was used for God's work, to further God's kingdom, to accomplish God's will for the glory of God. And God's blessings on another occasion were used to undertake an idolatrous task, accomplishing Satan's will, building man's kingdom, feeding the flesh, and providing occasion to sin. God's blessings were used to partake in these polar opposite activities. You know, God blesses you and I with so much too, doesn't he? And the question is, what are we doing with what God has entrusted us with? Now, are we focused on on God's kingdom or our own kingdom? Are we building a tabernacle or are we building a calf? Whose glory matters more, mine or God? Now, what are we doing with the time, talents, abilities and resources that God has blessed us with? Are we investing in the heavenly kingdom or an earthly kingdom? You know, beloved, a day is coming when we will give an account of what we have done for Christ with what He has entrusted us with. With our time, our talents, our gifts and resources. And we need to be careful that we do not invest in the wrong places and the wrong things. Now, do you remember the parable of the talents? Where different people did different things with what they were entrusted with. Do you remember the response for the servant who invested wisely with what he was entrusted with? The response was, well done, good and faithful servant. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want to hear from my Lord. You know, Brendan, well done, you were faithful with what I entrusted you with. You know, what glorious words to hear. But we must use what he gives us faithfully for his cause in order to hear this. You know, missionary C.T. Studd once said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And may we use what God has blessed us with for the cause of Christ rather than the cause of self. And may we invest in the heavenly kingdom rather than the earthly. And may we all hear those precious words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen. Let's pray.